This is not a test. This is not a test. Please remain calm. Unburied dead are coming back to life and seeking human victims. Seeking human victims. word about Elvis Aaron Presley in my presence again, I will kick the living shit out of you. Hey, no king slander here. And back on the program, always a pleasure to have him, Big Daddy Grizz, Jason Griswold. Mr. Dobson, it's time for us to do what the good Lord would refer to as a cleansing of the wicked. And what my brother George, God rest his soul, used to call 100% Alabama ass kicking. <laughs> Hell yeah. And rounding it out, the one, the only, the great Muji. Fuck Groucho. <laughs> uh, so, you know, people say Rob Zombie can't write dialogue, and I fucking disagree and use this movie as the shining example. Now, he's had some films. I would, you know, the dialogue was much weaker than it is here. This is certainly his best effort at that thus far, I think. But, I mean, goddamn, it's, it's, there's so many fucking one-liners. It's maybe one of the most quotable movies of all time. Yeah, the dialogue in this film is top notch. Um, before we actually started the watch for this, um, I was making dinner, so you had started like the making of bit on the DVD, and just them doing the table read, like first read throughs of this, and I was like, God damn, the dialogue in this movie. That's very sharp. 
Um, of course, going back to first viewings, as we always like to cover here at the top of the show. Gotta say, I saw it in theaters right when it came out on opening weekend. I believe it was even opening night. Uh, saw it with my ex-wife, I think, actually. It was like one of the last things we did together before the shit hit the fan there. Uh, and... This movie just had a, a profound impact on me from the moment I saw it. So there's not really going to be any sort of uh, suspense in what I think about it come the final thoughts because I've already said it's one of my favorite movies ever. I've rewatched this movie hundreds of times probably at this point. Um, I, I just like, yeah, like it, it, it punched me in the gut the first time I fucking saw it. And proceeds to do so every single time. That's another thing. This is like crazy. So, but I guess we'll throw the suspense. Will it do it again on this 348th viewing? You'll find out. What about y'all? Yeah, I actually went and saw it with you and your ex-wife. I wasn't going to bring that up first, but I remember it being an especially good time because I had a large Diet Coke and I brought in a, a flask of uh, Evan Williams. So that made for a pleasurable viewing experience. And like you, I think the the movie was a good punch in the gut in the in the best way possible. So fun times. Yeah, saw it in the theater. Have not seen it a few hundred times, but I've seen it a couple dozen times at this point. Um, I remember just being like pretty happy in the like in a different sense after seeing this movie in the theater because after coming out of like House of a Thousand Corpses, a movie that you know I really liked when it came out, I'm still like it, of course. Um, but, you know, people were, you know, a lot of people that didn't like it had like a lot of criticisms for Rob Zombie and what they thought of him as a director. Because, you know, the movie's not perfect. But um, I remember just like, and then, you know, thinking, no, but I think he knows what he's doing. And then like when this, after walking out of the theater of this movie, kind of taking a victory lap, like a fucking, like, you, you know, fucking told you guys, like, yeah. Um, I did not see this movie in theaters. Um, I didn't see it for a few years um, it wasn't until Dan and I were together, but you know, as you could imagine, uh, pretty early into the relationship, he's like, you gotta watch these movies. And I'm pretty sure we did like a double feature and watched House of a Thousand Corpses and Double Three Jags back to back. And I have seen it, not the 368 times, but like, like half of that probably. <laughs> Cause, uh. I'm, I, it's on a lot. I remember when it, it in the weeks preceding it, Rob Zombie really did an amazing job with the website. And there was all of this hype surrounding the website where he did these like criminal files, case files, and wrote all of this fucking extensive backstory on each of the characters. And I remember reading that and at you know after rewatching house of a thousand corpses and like really loving those characters again and just like pouring into that information on that website just just fucking digging into it uh, to an insane degree and uh it really got me hyped as fuck for the movie and uh, and yeah, I think as far as as characters and flushing shit out, I think it's like the you know there's so much of that is done in the movie, but the fact that he went to all that trouble to give that extra hype to it, I don't know, it just made it that much more special for me. 
I agree. I remember that time, and it was, uh, you know, between you and me, we, we would talk about it, and I was talking to guys at work about it, talking to my brother about it, and he definitely wasn't the first guy to, like, have a website for his new movie, but giving, like, that level of detail and all the extra photos and things like that, I think that was really a nice touch for promotion and just for fans of his stuff in general. Hell yeah. So a, a little snippet of what it was like to be there kind of in prime time for the release of this movie and all the hype surrounding it. So a lot more of that to come as we dig on into the Culverners report. But before we do that, who we going to kick it to? Of course, our wonderful musical guest to give you some killer jams here, courtesy of our pals at Horror Pain Gore Death Productions. That's HorrorPainGoreDeath.com. And this week we have a band called Snipers of Babel with their new album, Gabriel, and hailing from Maryland. This band was conceived in 2016 and is the brainchild of Mike Bossier from Morbius and Oblivion. And it takes an unorthodox approach in metal. Uh, Gabriel is the band's debut full length of shredding industrialized death metal with groove and notes of progressive metal. It's a concept album about the breakdown of humanity and its eventual demise to artificial intelligence. Snipers of Babel also fuse classical and soundtrack-esque ambience, along with multiple powerhouse vocalists that cover a wide range of sounds from guttural growls to piercing screams and soaring operatic melodies. Full of grooves, top-notch production, machine gun drums and riffs, Gabriel is an intricate, skillfully crafted soundscape unlike anything else heard in metal to date. Snipers of Babel features the prolific Kevin Talley from Dying Fetus, Misery Index, and Suffocation on drums, and has guest vocal spots by Richard Grindfather Johnson from Agoraphobic Nosebleed, Drugs of Faith and Enemy Soil, Frank Reaney from Internal Bleeding, and more for fans of Chimera, Devil Driver, Dying Fetus, Fear Factory, and Suffocation. Here is Snipers of Babel with Digital Death. Kicking off this week's episode of Seeking Human Victims. Ain't no chicken fuckers round these parts. Welcome to another edition of the Seeking Human Victims podcast. I am your host, the maniacal minister of the occult, the devil you know, the original motherfucker, the Rev Dan Wilson, and we are bringing you one of my goddamn favorite movies of all times, all times. Talking about 2005's The Devil's Rejects. Uh, pretty obvious to those that know me that this movie was a huge influence. Uh, I would encourage everyone to go back to our Patreon archives for just $1 a month. You can unlock it and whole a whole 15 seasons of glory for you is there. But very important is our House of a Thousand Corpses episode. This film, 
a sequel to that, of course. So all of the background that got these characters started, we're going to reference that a lot on this episode because this is a sequel, a lot of the same moving parts. So with that being said, I would like to introduce my very own Firefly family. First, Dreamboat Annie. Son, if you ever say another derogatory word about Elvis Aaron Presley in my presence again, I will kick the living shit out of you. Hey, <laughs> no king slander here. And back on the program, always a pleasure to have him, Big Daddy Grizz, Jason Griswold. Mr. Dobson, it's time for us to do what the good Lord would refer to as a cleansing of the wicked. And what my brother George, God rest his soul, used to call 100% Alabama ass kicking. <laughs> Hell yeah. And rounding it out, the one, the only, the great Mooji. Fuck Groucho. So, you know, people say Rob Zombie can't write dialogue, and I fucking disagree and use this movie as the shining example. Now, he's had some films. I would, you know, the dialogue was much weaker than it is here. This is certainly his best effort at that thus far, I think. But I mean, God damn, it's, it's, there's so many fucking one-liners. This may be one of the most quotable movies of all time. Yeah, the dialogue in this film is top notch. Um, before we actually started the watch for this, um, I was making dinner. So you had started like the making of bit on the DVD and just them doing the table read, like first read throughs of this. And I was like, God damn the dialogue in this movie. That's very sharp. Um, of course, going back to first viewings, as we always like to cover here at the top of the show. Gotta say, I saw it in theaters right when it came out on opening weekend. I believe it was even opening night. Uh, saw it with my ex-wife, I think, actually. It was like one of the last things we did together before the shit hit the fan there. Uh, and... This movie just had a, a profound impact on me from the moment I saw it. So there's not really going to be any sort of uh, suspense in what I think about it come to final thoughts because I've already said it's one of my favorite movies ever. I've rewatched this movie hundreds of times probably at this point. Um, I, I just like, yeah, like it, it, it punched me in the gut the first time I fucking saw it. And proceeds to do so every single time. That's another thing. It's just like crazy. So, but I guess we'll throw the suspense. Will it do it again on this 348th viewing? You'll find out. What about y'all? Yeah, I went and saw it with you and your ex-wife. I wasn't going to bring that up first, but I remember it being an especially good time because I had a large Diet Coke and I brought in a, a flask of uh, Evan Williams. So that made for a pleasurable viewing experience. And like you, I think the the movie was a good punch in the gut in the in the best way possible. So fun times. Yeah, saw it in the theater. Have not seen it a few hundred times, but I've seen it a couple dozen times at this point. Um, I remember just being like pretty happy in the like in a different sense after seeing this movie in the theater because after coming out of like House of a Thousand Corpses, a movie that you know I really liked when it came out, I'm still like it, of course. Um, but, you know, 
people were, you know, a lot of people that didn't like it had like a lot of criticisms for Rob Zombie and what they thought of him as a director. Cause you know, the movie's not perfect, but um, I remember just like, and then, you know, thinking, no, but I think he knows what he's doing. And then like when this, after walking out of the theater, this movie kind of taking a victory lap, like a fucking, like, you, you know, fucking told you guys like, yeah. Um, I did not see this movie in theaters. Um, I didn't see it for a few years. Um, it wasn't until Dan and I were together. But, you know, as you could imagine, uh, pretty early into the relationship, he's like, you got to watch these movies. And I'm pretty sure we did like a double feature and watched House of a Thousand Corpses and Double Three Jags back to back. And I have seen it not the 368 times, but like like half of that probably. Because <laughs> uh, I'm, I, it's on a lot. I remember when it it in the weeks preceding it rob zombie really did an amazing job with the website and there was all of this hype surrounding the website where he did these like criminal files case files and wrote all of this fucking extensive backstory on each of the characters and i remember reading that and at the, you know, after rewatching House of a Thousand Corpses and like really loving those characters again, and just like pouring into that information on that website, just just fucking digging into it uh, to an insane degree, and uh, it really got me hyped as fuck for the movie. And uh, and yeah, I think as far as as characters and flushing shit out, I think it's like the you know there's so much of that is done in the movie, but the fact that he went to all that trouble to give that extra hype to it, I don't know, it just made it that much more special for me. I agree. I remember that time, and it was uh you know between you and me, we we would talk about it, and I was talking to guys at work about it, talking to my brother about it, and he definitely wasn't the first guy to like have a website for his new movie. But giving like that level of detail and all the extra photos and things like that, I think that was really a nice touch for promotion and just for fans of his stuff in general. Hell yeah. So a, a little snippet of what it was like to be there kind of in prime time for the release of this movie and all the hype surrounding it. So a lot more of that to come as we dig on into the Culverners report. But before we do that, who we gonna kick it to? Of course, our wonderful musical guest to give you some killer jams here, courtesy of our pals at Horror Pain Gore Death Productions. That's HorrorPainGoreDeath.com. And this week we have a band called Snipers of Babel with their new album, Gabriel, and hailing from Maryland. This band was conceived in 2016 and is the brainchild of Mike Bossier from Morbius and Oblivion. And it takes an unorthodox approach in metal. Uh, Gabriel is the band's debut full length of shredding industrialized death metal with groove and notes of progressive metal. It's a concept album about the breakdown of humanity and its eventual demise to artificial intelligence. Snipers of Babel also fuse classical and soundtrack 
soundtrack-esque ambience, along with multiple powerhouse vocalists that cover a wide range of sounds, from guttural growls to piercing screams and soaring operatic melodies. Full of grooves, top-notch production, machine gun drums and riffs, Gabriel is an intricate, skillfully crafted soundscape unlike anything else heard in metal to date. Snipers of Babel features the prolific Kevin Talley from Dying Fetus, Misery Index, and Suffocation on drums, and has guest vocal spots by Richard Grindfather Johnson from Agoraphobic Nosebleed, Drugs of Faith, and Enemy Soil, Frank Reaney from Internal Bleeding, and more for fans of Chimera, Devil Driver, Dying Fetus, Fear Factory, and Suffocation. Here is Snipers of Babel with Digital Death. Kicking off this week's episode of Seeking Human Victims.
The Coroner's Report. So when Rob Zombie wrote House of a Thousand Corpses, he originally had this vague idea for a story about the brother of the sheriff that the Firefly family killed and him coming back to get his revenge. After Lionsgate made back all of their money from the first day of House of a Thousand Corpses theatrical release, they wanted Zombie to make another film, and he started to seriously think about a new story. With Rejects, he said he wanted to make it more horrific and the characters less cartoonish than in Corpses, and that he wanted to make something that was almost like a violent western, like a road movie. He cited influences like Bonnie and Clyde from 1967, The Wild Bunch from Sam Peckinpah in 1969, Badlands from 1973 and the Texas Chainsaw Massacre from 1974 as stylistic influences on The Devil's Rejects. And the for the cinematography, he hired Phil Parmette, who had shot the documentary Harlan County, USA, because he wanted to adopt a handheld camera documentary look. And he does such a great job at really recreating that 70s film look here. This was a popular thing at the time. I know Robert Rodriguez was doing a lot of kind of similar stuff. You had Tarantino doing some similar stuff. We had Grindhouse coming out around the same time uh, with the double feature of, of, you know, like just like the 70s vibe was very strong in the early 2000s. And I think he really nailed it with the cinematographer on that. Yeah, I definitely thought that it had the grindhouse feel for sure. Um, That is actually one of the things like this movie looks just like leaps and bounds better than House of a Thousand Corpses did. Even though I like to look at that movie, you know, it was a kind of, you know, obviously lower budget and everything like that. But this movie looks, you know, like a nice professional movie. It looks really good. And you might think that with it being a Rob Zombie film, the music was done by Rob Zombie. And of course, he had a big hand in it, but he did not do the score. He did, of course, curate the soundtrack personally. And that is one thing that adds a lot of flavor to this movie. He has just such a great knack for picking music that fits his films from the period. And the 70s is a rich period of great music. Uh, He definitely goes with more of like a southern western rock vibe. On the soundtrack, you get some Allman Brothers, you get some Joe Walsh. Um, you get the wonderful stylings of British musician Terry Reed, who Rob Zombie kind of returned to prominence with his featuring in this film. Uh, and I, I just love every single one of the fucking songs that he does on the soundtrack. And it actually caused me to seek out, you know, as much of his stuff as I could find. And he's become a, a big favorite, just like, uh, just that I didn't even know he fucking existed prior to the soundtrack. So that's a pretty big influence. And probably the biggest thing to come out of this soundtrack was Rob Zombie made Freebird fucking cool again. Uh, coming from the South, Jason, Grizz, and I, we know uh, we, we played in metal bands and bars, Freebird became a joke for many many years it's this epic opus of a song from leonard skinnard 
And, uh, you know, there was a time you go to the bars, I'll play Freebird. You know, it was just like amongst musicians, they hated the song because they got tired of fucking hearing requests for it. Every cover band did a shitty version of it. Uh, you just grew to despise Freebird, uh, no matter how much you love Skinner, even as a musician. So uh, what Rob Zombie did here with his use of Freebird in the closing cre- scene of the movie, not the closing credits, but the final showdown, was like he he kind of recontextualized it to make you think, oh, fuck, this is a great song. Like when you see it as the backdrop for all of the chaos that's going on. So, yeah, I can't say enough about just the soundtrack alone when talking about the music. I agree. Absolutely. You know, by that point in the film, I'd finished off most of the flask of the Evan. So by the time Freebird hit, it's like, oh, shit, this is so freaking awesome. Because, you know, they had those big swooping shots over the highway and mountains and all that. So just really brilliant use of something so commonplace when you grow up in the South. But yeah, uh, I love the soundtrack. As I recall, you and I both had the soundtrack in heavy rotation for a couple of years after, especially Terry Reed. So it's like fucking five stars just on the soundtrack alone, you know? And that soundtrack was pretty ubiquitous. Like I knew a lot of people that weren't even horror fans that had the soundtrack for this movie back when movie soundtracks were still a popular thing. Like to to ask another question, was this the last great cinematic soundtrack? Like in a way that like people bought the the record and everybody had it and fucking, you know, not just, Oh, that's high school musical too. Okay. Yeah. And the, uh, Guardians of the Galaxy soundtracks were pretty big in that respect, too. Oh, yeah, that's true. That's a good point. I mean, I guess, like, if you'd have to pretty much just disqualify any Disney, because that's, like, a whole part of their business is selling the music from their movies. That's true. But uh, if you want to buy the soundtrack, you still can. Uh, it's still out there on CD and, of course, uh, digital. But uh, in 2019... Zombie announced that Waxwork Records would release the soundtrack on vinyl along with the two other zombie films in the trilogy. And that would include an essay written by him in a 12 by 12 booklet containing behind the scenes photographs. Those are beautiful pieces of art. If you're a vinyl collector and can get your hands on those, I would uh, I would recommend that. Um, And then, of course, it mentions the dual disc with there being part the soundtrack and part DVD, and that's the one I had. On the DVD side, there's the amazing uh, hour-long documentary, 30 Days in Hell, the making of The Devil's Rejects. And I learned a lot about the making of it then, and I revisited it before we did this episode to just get refreshed. So that was all pretty cool. Uh, the score itself, not the soundtrack, but the actual, like, the score, the strings and the other, the stings and what have you, done by, of course, longtime zombie composer Tyler Bates. This was the first movie that he worked with Zombie on. Bates is very famous for work all over the place. Uh, he did a lot of work in horror. Of course, he did the Dawn of the Dead remake, which we already covered, but... And you kind of go back and talk a little more. He did 300, Sucker Punch, Halloween 1 and 2, John Wick. Collaborated with Zack Snyder, Zombie, Neil Marshall, William Friedkin, Scott Derrickson, James Gunn, so many more. He's also a former lead guitar player for Marilyn Manson and produced his albums, The Pale Emperor and Heaven Upside Down. He's a great score composer and does a fucking fantastic job here the the score really sets uh an unease it sets it really builds great tension and it's just it's not like too overdone i think it's awesome 
And then finally, when talking about the music, the third and final component is Banjo and Sullivan. So we'll talk about the actors that played them in a moment, but they were the band that is traveling through that are murdered by the Devil's Rejects in the hotel. Uh, but Rob Zombie, you know, we talked about him going to great lengths with the website. He went to great lengths even with this soundtrack. He hired musician Jesse Dayton uh, to come in and record a whole album as Banjo and Sullivan. And it's a fucking fantastic album. Grizz had that back in the day as well. We wore the skin off that thing. Very hard to find now. You can't, it's not streaming anywhere. You can find it on YouTube kind of illegally, but it's there. Uh, but I would recommend checking it out if you can get a hold of it because it's the songs are hilarious. They're really well written. Um, Jesse Dayton says Rob Zombie essentially paid for his home with his work with him. Uh, he he did all of the, the songs for this, but then Zombie brought him back later for Halloween 2 where he's Captain Clegg in the band, the Captain Clegg and the Nightmare Creatures. He's the front man. So they just had, they skipped the middle man where they had actor Lou Temple play him in this movie. They actually brought Jesse Dayton back in to just play a musician in a future movie. And on that soundtrack, he does a whole album of that guy. So that's, that's pretty fucking cool. I think at the very least, you have to look up the song. I'm at home getting hammered while she's out getting nailed. That's yeah, probably my that, favorite one. That one's hilarious. Yeah, that's a good one. That's also a great Jerry Lawler and Andy Kaufman reference in there for our wrestling fans. And that one, uh, the song Dick Soup is really funny. And uh, what the fuck is the other one that's really great on there? Oh, Killer on the Lamb. That's that's a cool fucking song. That's actually like a good like country song about murder. Uh, the rest of them are you know kind of funny, but it's it's good shit. Check it out. Anyway, okay, done with the music. Being a Rob Zombie production, that was probably going to be involved, right? <laughs> so, anyway, special effects, the great Wayne Toth returns. He was the effects supervisor in House of a Thousand Corpses. He's Rob Zombie's go-to guy. He is back here. The gore is superb. Chef's kiss. Mwah. Have fun scraping them brains off the road. <laughs> There's not a ton of it, but what he used is to great effect. I mean... The face, the whole face scene where they cut the face off and she has to run with it. Oh, yeah. Iconic. Right. Like, that's the poster right there. I mean, it made the poster. I have, I don't have it up because I think it got ripped in a move, but I did still keep it, I believe. I have a signed Devil's Rejects poster signed by Bill Mosley that is just that image of that, of the chick running down the road about to get smashed by the fucking semi-truck. Yep. Good stuff. This cast, what a fucking cast. Now, I mean, it's it's going to take a minute, but it's not going to take as long because we covered most of these people in House of a Thousand Corpses, so we'll mainly really stick on the people that were new, um, that were worthy of talking about. Of course, we had Sid Haig as Captain Spaulding, or Cutter uh, returns for... This is... Uh, this is his career best performance, and that says a lot in a humongously long career of great performances. I think Captain Spaulding in the first film, very entertaining. Uh, there's a levity to him here that is just different, and, and it's kind of what makes the character legendary. I think we would all love 
the House of a Thousand Corpses characters still over time if that was the only movie that existed. But the fact that this movie came along, it gives Sid Haig such levity and, and as Captain Spaulding. And you see so many different sides of him beyond just kind of the face that you see and the same for bill mosley and the same for sherry moon zombie and what no doubt her greatest performance um bill mosley is otis sherry moon as baby um just the, the firefly family the chemistry with them in this one goes to the next level they're humanized a great deal uh they're totally portrayed as soulless monsters in the first film you actually kind of start feeling for them in this one yeah i don't want to say sid haig carried this movie but i think his performance is definitely the standout uh next to william forsyth who obviously we'll talk about later but of the three main characters i think said Haig like definitely had the most depth to his character i mean i don't know how much depth you get for a psychotic clown but he's definitely all over the place and i think it was just fantastic yeah man i mean as uh you know great and kind of iconic like he was in house of a thousand corpses you know, he's got a pretty limited role in that movie. He's, you know, he bookends it, but, you know, in this one, like he, you know, if you, all three of them are the stars, but if you have to kind of pick like who's the main guy, you know, I think it was Sid Haig. And I do definitely agree, you know, over his career, you know, he's obviously like way more famous for kind of playing bit parts, being a character actor, you know, he does like, he's famous for, being in really good episodes and a really good bad guy on like a shit ton of TV shows. But like, this is definitely the one where he gets to like sink his teeth into the most and totally agree. This is definitely the highlight of his career. And, um, and yeah, it's definitely like the best that he was in, you know, any of these Rob Zombie movies. I think the same would be said for Bill Mosley as well, honestly, like, as far as he's just in peak form here. Yeah, I was going to argue that while, like, not to to the detriment of Sid Haig, may he rest in peace, um, this is Bill Mosley's movie. This is his fucking movie. Um, He he took Otis and really added, like, figured him out. He, He lived with the character long enough and, like, came to understand him I guess you could say and it's so obvious that he he knows exactly what to do with the character and that he has worked so hard on it and it shows that he's putting everything into Otis and I'm gonna argue that it's his movie yeah I think a good argument could be made either way what Muji yeah say Bill Mosley's incredible as well and you do make a good point on him like the character, like, in House of Thousand Corpses, once again, as cool and as hilarious and kind of stuff as, you know, that movie is and as, you know, affecting he is, like, he's pretty intimidating in that movie. Like, he's not much different than kind of, you know, like a like a prototypical, like, Charles Manson kind of type character, like the stuff he's saying. And this one, he definitely has, like, a lot more depth to his character. Like, the whole ice cream scene. That shit is so fucking funny to me every time we watch it. Where he's like, forget it. There's no fucking ice cream in your fucking future. And then literally it cuts to them eating ice cream. And he's trying to look annoyed. But he also looks like he's about to fucking laugh. And, like, that kind of depth to Otis that, like, Dan had mentioned really humanizes him. 
and you know we all can relate to just wanting to get some goddamn ice cream you know tootie fucking fruity and it just adds just the little facial expressions like that like he just really fleshed out the character yeah the uh proverbial three from hell what grace i was gonna say i do like his performance even though i will still be on team sid Hake. i think probably bill mosley's best scene is when he has banjo and sullivan in the field and he's about to wax them and then he says fuck you and he's like oh that's what they all say fuck you and if you're talking about depth to character you know he's projecting that sense of you know he's done this a million times before and he's gonna keep doing it as long as he wants to and and it doesn't make a difference to him. So I think that was a really powerful scene. Oh, yeah. He's a fucking animal in that scene. Like, it's just incredible. It's one of the greatest scenes in horror history, in my opinion. Uh, just this wild. The dialogue, the fear in the eyes of the victims, how uncomfortable he makes it. Like, God damn, it's good. Uh, and then William Forsythe, speaking of great performances, holy fuck, as uh, John Quincy Wydale, the sheriff, who kind of turns the reject's baby face because he goes so far in his attempt to get revenge that you start feeling even more sympathy for them. Um, but I mean, God damn, like what a fucking great performance of a no nonsense Texas shit kicker out to get revenge for a dead family member. I mean, it's a tale as old as time. He has some great fucking lines. You want to know about his career? You go back to our bonus episode on stone cold with Brian Bosworth as he's, uh, an amazing villain in that movie. Uh, but uh, that's that's available in the archive, patreon.com slash OG scare. Uh, but goddamn what a performance from William Forsythe. Oh, hell yeah. I mean, I think probably 60% of the quotable lines from this movie are from him. And he's just going for it. And he sells it like hell. So, I mean, you could watch the movie with just him alone and it'd still be pretty good. But put him up against Sid Haig and Bill Mosley in those scenes towards the end. And it's just, it's fantastic. Very commanding presence and uh, really can work a scene. You know, if he's around, he's who you're looking at usually. Yeah. He chews the scenery, so to speak. And I mean, the, the great performances continue. Ken Foray as Charlie Altamont, the goddamn legend himself. He's of course Peter from Dawn of the Dead. He's Roger, uh, Roger Rockmore from Keenan and Kale, the dad on that show. And in so many other things over the years, he's a goddamn legend. You can go back to our uh, episode on the Dawn of the Dead remake where he's got a nice cameo and we talk a bit about his career there in the archives to learn more about his history. But I mean, another like good percentage of the quotable lines come from Charlie in this movie. Wolf J. Flywheel, one of his aliases. He's he's got the Lando Calrissian role in this one, and I don't just mean that because he's the black dude. I mean, he fucking you know he's the trusted confidant that they go hide out with that turns him into the fucking man. So, you know, you, you love Charlie and you hate him for what he does to the, the rejects in this. But, uh, God damn, the, the scene talking about, <laughs> it's, uh, you think they want some of that Star Wars shit? He's like, oh, hell, then I have some real sick bitches in here that have horny robots tripping over shit. <laughs> droids, boss. They call them droids. <laughs> 
Listen, those scenes were trippy for me as a, a kid who grew up on Nickelodeon cartoons and, uh, well, Nickelodeon shows in general, um, to be watching freaking Tommy Pickles and uh, Kean's dad freaking talking about Star Wars sex acts. <laughs> well, he's a legend that way. He can do whatever <laughs> the hell he wants. <laughs> Shout out to Ken Foray. I doubt he listens to the show, but he did once like one of my wrestling promos on Instagram in the wild, and it was one of the proudest moments of my career. So, uh, truly love that guy. Just what a fucking great actor. and What a great performance. And then we had Matthew McGrory as Tiny returning for that role. It's his final role, sadly, as he passed away shortly after this film. Uh, but uh, Tiny has uh, a more serious presence in this film. In House of a Thousand Corpses, he's mostly played for comic relief. Here, the film starts out with him dragging the naked corpse of a victim through the woods in a very kind of somber tone. And Tiny kind of has this sad, somber tone throughout the movie all the way up till the end when he comes and makes the big save for the family and then walks back into the house and... Let's the flames consume him, meeting his sad end. Um, the, the character of Tiny has never had a ton of depth in any of these movies, but I love him nonetheless. Yeah, he was really dragging that body and spent the whole movie. I felt like his internal dialogue would be like, man, why can't they just stop killing people and we can just be a family? Like he just wants to watch Saturday morning cartoons, and instead he's got a... He was driving that bitch like it was Tuesday morning chores. Like, this, <laughs> he's just so tired of having to haul... He's like, all, 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 I, all I'm good for is hauling bodies and digging ditches. Can y'all just... Just wants to eat his Agatha Krispies. Right, he just wants to eat cereal and watch Saturday morning cartoons, but they can't quit fucking killing people long enough. Or tiny. Fair observation. We had a cast change here for a couple of cast changes. The biggest one is Mother Firefly. Of course, in the original, she's played by the legendary Karen Black. She's not in this. Police Academy veteran Leslie Easterbrook comes on as Mother Firefly here. She's also... Well known for her appearances on Laverne and Shirley. She was also in Murder, She Wrote, Hanging with Mr. Cooper, Baywatch, Matlock, The Dukes of Hazard, and more. Uh, she comes on here to uh, start working with Rob Zombie and comes back to work with him a couple other times. She's in his Halloween remake. Uh, she's also in the movie The Afflicted. And she did some voiceover work in Batman and Superman, the animated series. She actually sang the national anthem at Super Bowl 17, which landed her the starring role in several musicals on Broadway. And then she recorded a song for the soundtrack of Police Academy Mission to Moscow. The great Leslie Easterbrook, a great character actor herself. Uh, great performance as Mother Firefly, though I think she kind of takes it over the top a couple times. And like, I think she's like, if you could criticize anything about this movie, I, I think maybe her, I, I don't think her performance is bad, but I think kind of her tone when she's like flipping out and getting real crazy doesn't really match the rest of the movie. It, it matches more something that you would have seen in the other movie. Well, she probably watched the first movie for prep, and then nobody directed her, or maybe she ignored direction. I don't know. I thought 
Karen Black was a little bit more subdued, so thought that was maybe a little too big of a discrepancy, but wasn't a bad performance. No, I I don't want anyone to think that I'm even shitting on her performance. It was great. I mean, but I just I don't know. It's it's the only thing that's kind of like eh, to me. Like sometimes you could you could maybe say, okay, that's not as strong as the other performances, but I think she did she did fine. Well, a lot of her performance, she's by herself, or not by herself, but she's not with the rest of the main cast. Like, I'm mainly talking about the scene where she starts whooping and hollering in the jail. Yeah. But it was a choice. It, you know, like, I think, you know, it leads to a very pivotal moment in the film, and it's good. Because I'm not at all trying to shit talk her. But people accuse me sometimes of being like a homer, like, oh, like Dan won't say anything bad about shit that he likes. And so, like, okay, if you're like holding a gun to my head and saying I have to criticize this movie, there it is. And then we had uh, Dave Sheridan as Officer Ray Dobson. Best known as Officer Doofy in the Scary Movie series, which itself is a spoof of Dewey from Scream. It's kind of funny to see him here. And then we had uh, E.G. Daly as Candy, who was one of Charlie's girls. And she has a lot of great lines in this as well. And, you know, fairly prominent role. Uh, she's, of course, best known for being a voice acting legend as Tommy Pickles on Rugrats and All Grown Up. She's Buttercup and the Powerpuff Girls. She was Rudy Tabuti on Chalk Zone, Julius on, excuse me, Julius Jr. She also voiced the title character in the film Babe, Pig in the City. And she was Bam Bam in the live-action Flintstones. She has voiced Batgirl. She voiced Twilight Sparkle. No, no, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm getting her confused with Tara Strong. But she did, uh, E.G. Daly did a lot of shit, man. Voice acting legend. Uh, but... Then she also did a lot of live acting. She was in Valley Girl, Dogfight, No Small Affair, Fandango, Streets of Fire, My Sister's Keeper, and of course was Dottie in Pee Wee's Big Adventure. And she has released four studio albums. What a babe, what a talent, what a legend, and what a great performance in this. She was also the singer in the band in Better Off Dead that did the theme song One Way Love. So that was a great performance. Hell yeah. Yeah, I mean, E.G. Daly is absolutely iconic for me, like I mentioned earlier. Um, and it doesn't matter how many movies I see her in. Anytime I see her, you know, as an adult playing an adult, even in her normal voice, I can still hear the tones of some of her most famous characters. And it's so trippy for me. Um, but it <laughs> added like a layer of extra amusement to her character as well so that was fun but yeah um she played a fantastic bottom bitch for charlie and i mean it's an embarrassment of riches honestly this cast jeffrey lewis as roy sullivan of banjo and sullivan appeared in more than 200 films and TV shows. Just a goddamn character-acting legend of the highest caliber, known for roles alongside Clint Eastwood and Robert Redford a lot of the times. He often portrayed villains or quirky characters. He played a bodyguard in the Jean-Claude Van Damme film Double Impact. 
He appeared in TV shows like Bonanza, Gunsmoke, Mannix, Mission Impossible, Cannon, Barnaby Jones, Mork and Mindy, The Golden Girls, Lou Grant, Mama's Family, Magnum P.I., The A-Team, Murder, She Wrote, The X-Files, Little House on the Motherfucking Prairie, Highway to Heaven, Starsky and Hutch, Walker, Texas Ranger, Law and Order, Criminal Intent, and more. In 1979, he appeared in Salem's Lot, which we will one day cover on this show. He also played opposite Polly Holiday in the Alice spinoff Flow, and that earned him a Golden Globe nomination. And he also co-starred in the movie in the show Lands End with Fred Dyer. His film credits include Down in the Valley, The Butcher, Maverick, and When Every Day Was the Fourth of July. We mentioned he's a frequent collaborator with Clint Eastwood, including with films such as Midnight in the Garden of Good and Evil, Pink Cadillac, Any Which Way You Can, Bronco Billy, Every Which Way But Loose, Thunderbolt and Lightfoot, and High Plains Drifter. In the 1980s, he was a member of the musical storytelling group The Celestial Navigations with musician and songwriter Jeff Levin. He is also the father of another iconic babe, Juliette Lewis. And he passed away... Just a few years ago, very saddened to hear that when it happened. Um, just what a fucking talented dude. Roy Sullivan is fucking hilarious. Uh, you, like, right out of the gate talking about his wife's tits flying out when she was riding the fucking mechanical bull. Um, and just fucking laughing about that, talking about Johnny Cash, like how he won't shut up. Like, we know wrestlers like that, right? They're like, oh, I worked the show with Ric Flair one time. And they'll never shut up about it. Like, oh, Johnny Cash, you shook my hand. Did I ever tell you you shook my hand? Like, fucking, he was fucking great in this. You really feel for him. Like, you get, he doesn't have a ton of on-screen time, but you really feel for him enough of the time you get to his murder. You're like, oh, man. Like, loved him. Yeah, I agree. Um, definitely liked him in this movie. And yeah, man, he totally, he 100% seems like, acts like one of those people that we both know very well, that it doesn't matter if like you're in the middle of a conversation with somebody else, or if you're talking about something and it's just totally off topic, they'll just like fucking, you make eye contact with them, they like give you like a little half grin or like, like they're continuing a story they were already telling you like, yep, I was in a locker room with Ricky Morton one time. It's like, we weren't fucking talking about that. He, he totally seems like one of those guys. Rest in peace to the great Jeffrey Lewis. In this movie and in real life. Double R.I.P. R.I.P. and And then we had the great Priscilla Barnes as Gloria Sullivan, the wife of Roy. Who had one titty going this way and one titty going that way. She's best known for her role as Terry Alden in the ABC sitcom Three's Company from 1981 to 1984. She was also in the films like A Vacation in Hell, License to Kill, Stepfather 3, The Crossing Guard, Mall Rats, and The Visitation. In addition to this film, of course, and she's also in the CW comedy drama Jane the Virgin. The great Priscilla Barnes has a super uncomfortable scene with bill mosley she acts her fucking ass off in this another like i mean he stacked the fucking deck in this movie with talent and then we had kate norby as wendy banjo not as well known as some of the others she has been in some tv shows she was in mad men she was in boston public nip nip tuck and swing town uh she was 
great in her role actually you know she's very vulnerable she like gets pulled out of the shower she's got to watch all of this horror she gets driven crazy by putting her husband's face on her uh and left to fucking sit in this hotel room with these rotting corpses overnight um great performance very brief but thought she was fucking awesome and then we had lou temple as adam banjo annie were you about to say something i was just gonna say that uh when you were watching that uh documentary they were talking about the scene where she had to run with the face on and how um she described that filming that scene and that she just like lost her shit and just kept running until they stopped her (laughs) And then she just, like, had to take a nap afterwards. And after seeing that, and then when we watched it, it was like, yeah, Jesus fucking Christ, I would have to as well. There's so many people in this fucking cast. Jesus Christ. Lou Temple as Adam Banjo. Lou Temple had several film roles in the horror genre. Of course, this being his biggest one, but he was also Sheriff Hoyt in the prequel to the Texas Chainsaw Massacre remake. Uh, He was also Noel Cluggs in Halloween, and he played Marv in Trailer Park of Terror. He returned to work with Rob Zombie a third time in the movie 31. He was also in the action film Domino, and he was in the comedy drama Waitress and Axel in the third season of The Walking Dead. And... uh, Another awesome performance. I don't, you know, he's he just has to kind of be scared and kind of a bitch the whole time, and he does that well. <laughs> and then the great Danny Trejo. I kind of was shocked to look and see. I don't think we've done a film with him in it. I was going to say, oh, surely we've done a film. We'll just say go check that episode out, but we haven't. So, you know, goddamn Danny Trejo, legend, Desperado, Heat, from Dust Till Dawn, frequent collab with uh, Robert Rodriguez, who is his second cousin. He played the character of Machete Cortez, originally developed for the film Spy Kids, but later expanded into its own franchise. Tonally very different. (laughs) His movie career began in 1985 when he accidentally landed a role in the movie Runaway Train, where he played the role of a boxer for a daily fee of $320. Uh, He went on to star in a multitude of films. We talked about some of them. Also, Dust Till Dawn 2 and 3. Reindeer Games, Anchorman, Grimedhouse, Hangman's Daughter, and more. A true legend, and he, alongside his partner, Diamond Dallas Page, as Rondo, or I'm sorry, as Billy Ray Snapper, make up the unholy two, the bounty hunters that hunt down the rejects and really kick the shit out of them there in the last scene. Of course, I don't think we need to go to a giant bio on DDP. Most of the people listening to the show are probably wrestling fans, so I'm sure you're all very, very familiar with DDP, but not only was he a great wrestler and is he a cool dude, but he's done a few movies, and this is probably the best one. Uh, I mean, there are some big fans of Ready to Rumble, don't get me wrong, but uh, his role as Billy Ray Snapper here is great. I laughed my ass off when DDP was smoking a cigar and cackling as he's kicking the shit out of the heels in Charlie's place there later in the movie. Uh, yeah, man, nothing that DDP has ever done has not been awesome. Just put that out there. But uh, we actually, uh, we've done so many episodes, you forget we have covered old Danny Trejo a little because we did uh, the uh, Rob Zombie Halloween back on the old Revenge of the Remakes, which you can listen to right now for 
one dollar a month on our Patreon. Oh, thanks, Muji. I totally forgot that he was in that. But he, Mikey, he was. He got drowned in a toilet. <laughs> Shitty way yeah. to go. Literally. Terrible way to go. Yes. But I was good to you, Mikey. <laughs> and then we had Brian Prosane as Jimmy, who meets a brutal death, a pretty hilarious role up until he walks in with his Dr. Corndog's hickory smoked jerky and gets his brains blown out. Uh, Brian Prosane is fucking hilarious, in my opinion. Like, there's one of his stand up albums. I can't remember the title of it now to save my life. That is like a top five all-time stand-up album of mine. It's really, really fucking funny, especially if you're a metalhead or a pothead. Um, he really, uh, he really nails those subgenres in that culture. Let me tell you. But uh, he's also on Mr. Show with Bob and David. He was on the show Mission Hill. He was on the Sarah Silverman show, as well as The Big Bang Theory. Been in a ton of movies. He's very unique looking dude, <laughs> to, to put it lightly. Uh, great comedian and a funny role. We had also porn legend Ginger Lynn Allen as Fanny, who was the fantasy sex dream that Captain Spaulding was had uh, was having, and you you know later see when he wakes up to see the reality. She doesn't quite look like Ginger Lynn. Uh, but, you know, she's just a legend in adult film. She also had uh, minor roles in some B-movies, but uh, a true icon. Adult Video News ranked her number seven in the 50 greatest porn stars of all time. After ending her career, she used her full name and found work uh, in additional B-movies. She had a late career return to the adult industry, and uh, she's also a member of the AVN Night Moves Adult Entertainment and XRCO Halls of Fame. And she did a great job here in her very short scene. And we had Tom Tolles as George Wydell reprising his role from the last film, playing the ghost of his brother, or of uh, John Quincy Wydell's brother, uh, George, and appears to him in a dream. The legend Michael Berryman as Cleavon, he ain't no chicken fucker. Uh, we talked extensively about him and his iconic career in our The Hills Have Eyes episode back on the West Craven Terror Timeline season. Boy, it's been a long time since then. Can't believe we've been going 15 seasons, y'all. That's wild. And then uh, we had PJ Souls as Susan, the mother of the child who he tells <laughs> that he has some top secret, top secret clown business. To commandeer the vehicle, and he, you know, he tells the kid if he comes back and he doesn't have a good reason why he doesn't like clowns, he's gonna kill his whole fucking family. One of the best scenes in the film, the iconic PJ Souls making a brief cameo here. You go back to our Halloween episode if you want to hear all about PJ and the day we hung out with her at a horror con. And then just rounding out the cast real fucking quick because this thing has gone on forever. I'm gonna try to nip this and make it brief for the rest of it we had uh josara gennaro as maria the maid who in horror finds the room of bodies at the hotel we had chris ellis as cogs mary warrenov as abby she started as a warhol andy warhol girl she's also in the suicidal tendency music video institutionalized 
Uh, she later reprised this character in their video, Possessed to Skate. She was in the movies Death Race 2000, Rock and Roll High School, and the sequel, Rock and Roll High School Forever. Uh, she was in the movies Blood Theater, Night of the Comet, Chopping Mall, and Nomads. She was also in uh, Class Struggle in Beverly Hills, Dick Tracy, Where Sleeping Dogs Lie, Looney Tunes Back in Action, and All About Evil and has appeared on numerous television shows. Clearly, Rob Zombie loves to give the actors and actresses of his childhood the most bit of parts. Uh, we also had Daniel Roebuck, who's a Rob Zombie regular, as Morris Green, who's the talk show host on the television. Uh, he actually plays Grandpa Munster in the new Munsters movie, so he's kind of got himself a promotion in the Rob Zombie film family, but he did a fucking great job in that, I thought. And uh, Morris Green is a, you know, it's a, a very brief cameo, but he's basically interviewing Walter Sweet P. O'Brien on the news, who was Pantera's former manager. Uh, but they're playing like religious evangelist types. And, you know, they're talking about like satanic cults. And he's like an expert on cults. So it's, it's pretty funny. Uh, good old Dan Roebuck, a Rob Zombie staple. He was also in The Fugitive and its spinoff U.S. Marshals. He was in The Late Shift. Uh, he played Jay Leno in that movie. Uh, he was in Lost. And he was also in some Don Coscarelli films in addition. And then we had Dwayne Whitaker as Dr. Bankhead. Tyler Maine, another recasting as Rufus Firefly. Of course, we talked all about Tyler in the Rob Zombie Halloween remake episode. Uh, but... Here he replaces uh, Robert, what the fuck is his name? I'm looking it up. Robert Allen Mukes played him in the first film. Tyler Mayne plays him in the second film. Doesn't really matter because you only see him for about two seconds because he gets killed in the opening scene. And it's uh, one Firefly member down to start this film. And we had uh, Jamie Orr as, or Jordan Orr as Jamie. Robert Trebor as Marty Walker. And Kane Hodder as Gas Mask Officer. He worked on some of the stunts. So, of course, also played an extra as well. Nice little cameo from Jason there. Shooting dates and locations. Shot from May 25th, 2004 to July 31st, 2004. It took 30 days to film in the hot, hot, hot California sun. They shot it at a few locations out in the desert, getting greasy and grimy and sandy and dirty. At Sable Ranch in Santa Clarita, that's where the Firefly House was. They also shot on Four Acres Movie Ranch in Palmdale, California. And the Club Ed movie set in Lancaster, which was the motel set. They shot in L.A., Santa Clarita, and other places. So uh, the house on Sable Ranch that we mentioned had actually been located in the middle of a forest prior to filming. They moved it there to the filming set, and uh, it was apparently used in many films in the 1990s while it was out in the forest. Super interested to see what movies that house is in and see if they're recognizable at all, if we could find that information. That is interesting. With that odd and interesting fact, let's open the door to the auditorium. Strange truths and morbid curiosities will be revealed inside the auditorium. 
if you'll recall from the House of a Thousand Corpses episode, we know that the MPAA and Rob Zombie are not exactly friends. Devil's Rejects had to be submitted to them eight times and earned an NC-17 rating every single time until the last one. According to Zombie, the censors had a problem with the overall tone of the film and specifically did not like the motel scene between Bill Mosley and Priscilla Barnes, forcing Zombie to cut two minutes of it for the theatrical release. However, this is restored in the uncut DVD and Blu-ray. I mean, I get that, though. It is really uncomfortable. Oh, incredibly. Like, it's the one thing that puts that movie to me into like dangerous territory because it just is so vile speaking of it doesn't even go as far as other movies no i don't know what it is about it but it's something speaking of that scene bill mosley said it was one of the hardest scenes he ever had to film uh he walked off set after that after rob said cut bill said his stomach was in knots he went and expressed to rob how he felt the scene was just uh, too much. Rob had the legendary quote we mentioned in the last episode. It's one I kind of live by. Art is not safe. Rob said, we are not just making a sequel. We're making something special. And then, of course, we had to do like 19 more takes. He said, Priscilla Barnes was fantastic the whole way, though. After I read the script, I thought I might have to carry her a little, but it was actually the other way around. She was incredible. After we wrapped, I went to my camper to wash up. And she left a note saying it was one of the best experiences of her career, which was very sweet because he was very, very bothered by that. But uh, one of my favorite quotes from cinema comes from the story of shooting that scene because it is so true. Now, of course, every art has its audience and you want to play with the parameters of that. But, you know, you can't be afraid to push the fucking boundaries. You don't accomplish things. You don't make people feel things by playing it safe. I just went and saw Terrifier 2 last week. Uh, The movie that was only supposed to have a limited weekend showing now has gone viral for people throwing up in the theater and passing out. And uh, it earned an extended release. And this is an independent film. And they did that because they didn't play it safe. In the fucking very least, they went for the throat. Art is not safe. Bill Mosley wasn't the only actor that it was emotionally draining on. Principal photography also took its toll on Sherry Moon. She recalls a scene she had to do with William Forsythe that required her to cry, and it took two to three hours to film and affected her so much that she called out of work the next two days. It was probably the scene where he's trying to kill her after she's been shot in the leg and he's chasing her. Yeah, I would assume. Yeah, because, like, she's, you know, losing her shit and... It's physically demanding as well, so yeah. Shit gets uncomfortable there. Her brother actually had a cameo in the movie, one of the cops in the opening shootout. He was originally only there as a visitor, but Rob put him in the scene because he knew how to handle firearms. (laughs) The line, I am the devil and I'm here to do the devil's work, is an altered version of a quote spoken by Tex Watson during the Manson family murders. Believe it or not, as gritty as the movie looks, there's around 100 digital effect shots in the film, mostly used to create gore. The scenes involving objects coming directly into contact with skin, like throat slitting, people getting shot in the head or neck, or stabbings, were created digitally. 
The violence that didn't involve direct skin contact, like people getting shot in areas covered by clothing, were achieved practically. Zombie originally intended to create all the special effects practically using techniques only available in the 70s, but time constraints fucked him on that. Couldn't tell. I really thought the whole movie was done on film with natural effects. Like, good job. The reason Karen Black did not return as Mother Firefly is that she demanded a higher salary to reply to prize her role. Zombie wanted to bring her back, but just could not afford it. And he decided to replace her with, of course, Leslie Easterbrook, as we mentioned. Zombie stated in an interview that until 31, this was his hardest film to cut down in order to receive an R rating. There was a whole narrative with Dr. Satan that is cut out of this movie. They feel like he didn't fit the tone, so they got rid of him. But Rosario Dawson actually had a part that deleted scene is out there. You can go to YouTube right now and find it. Um, she's a nurse. She's talking to another dude about, I think, the cop played by that Dave Dawson guy. Uh, like about going to the Ario Speedwagon concert and then Dr. Satan wakes up and rips her throat out and she dies. Um, so, you know, she's not there for long, but worth worth checking out. Kind of wish they would have kept that in, but I, I get what he's saying. Like, it, it definitely changes the tone of the movie. Chris Jericho, on, oh, go ahead. That's uh, okay. Chris Jericho auditioned for the role of Rondo, but was told he was too pretty for the part, and Danny Trejo was cast instead. Zombie was quoted about Dr. Satan being in the movie, saying it would be like if Chewbacca showed up in Bonnie and Clyde. So that was one of the reasons it was cut. Bill Mosley had to it's shave his head. Yeah, it is. It is. <laughs> Bill Mosley had to shave his head for the film in order to uh, get his wig to fit right. That same ranch was also used in an episode of Supernatural. Bill Mosley fell in love with Otis during filming this movie. He loved playing him. In fact, he went on to act like him to his family after the film for days and went days without showering. Uh, they really hated him by then. <laughs> they were tired of Otis at that point, I'm sure. Rob Zombie told William Forsythe to base Wydell on a combination of actors like Lee Marvin and Robert Shaw. Poor Matt McGrory hurt his ankle prior to shooting, so they had to find a 7-4 stunt double to replace him at, during the scene where he's dragging the corpse through the woods. The Family Media Guide claims the film uses the word fuck 224 times, but there's other sources that least count at least 500 times. That was until the release of the film Fuck in 2005. It was a record. All of the scenes filmed within a block of each other in Spalding's house were not altered in any way. They found it as is, only adding household items as if it was lived in. That's true. They found like this chicken farm and this old house and all this other shit that was abandoned just out in Texas in the wilderness. And they just were like, okay, this is good. And they just took it over and fucking shot there. There were like mummified chicken corpses in the fucking scenes that were there like they didn't there weren't props they were just real fucking mummified chicken i think these motherfuckers have a yard sale or something <laughs> yeah you think he's some bitches have a yard sale or something uh the film takes place on May 18th of 1978. The name Charlie Altam Altamont was inspired by the Rolling Stones documentary Gimme Shelter, in which a Hells Angels member hired to work security stabbed a youth to death at the Altamont Speedway in Northern California. In this film, Charlie gives shelter to the Firefly family. Sherry Moon has said that this is not really a sequel, but it's more like some characters from the first film came over and now they're in this movie. Hey, Sherry, I think that's what a sequel is.
but I think I get what she was trying to say. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. The anchorman is named Derek Sanderson after an NHL player of the same name who Rob Zombie was a big fan of. Both this and... I think. Right. (laughs) Both this and House of a Thousand Corpses were dedicated to actors who had appeared in the films but died prior to their releases. Lou Temple said he was scared to death about working with Rob Zombie because he'd never met him and only knew him through his music, and he didn't listen to that. Now, after meeting him, he called his friend Walton Goggins, who'd done House of a Thousand Corpses, and he said, no, I'm just a good Christian boy from the South. I don't know if I can go work for this devil worshiper. Goggins told him to shut up and do yourself a favor. Go do a good movie, and you'll have a friend for life. Temple did and enjoyed every minute of it, and he became friends with Zombie just like Goggins said he would. Sadly, the Sable Ranch, where they shot the Firefly home, was destroyed by a wildfire in 2016. Remember that making the news. Very sad. There was a tough time casting Wendy because he couldn't find an actress who would go fully nude for an extended period in front of the other actors. He said there were several who would strip naked, but none would act. Uh, He also wanted one who would look natural and vulnerable and real. He didn't want the scene to be sexy in any way. Kate Norby auditioned, and she was perfect. Chris Angel, I remember this shit. Chris Angel did a Buried Alive performance outside the house with Rob Zombie among the spectators shortly after the filming of this. It's a brief Bella Lugosi cameo on the television from the Ed Wood movie Bride of the Monster in the background of one of the scenes. Uh, E.G. Daly was originally, her character was originally going to be Natasha Leone, but I think, uh, goddamn, much better choice. Not, not that I dislike Natasha at all. I think she's actually pretty awesome, but E.G. Daly fucking owned that role. So glad she stayed. Of course, as mentioned in the film, all of their aliases are Groucho Marx and Marx Brothers characters like Otis Driftwood, Firefly, Captain Spaulding, Wolf J. Flywheel, and so many more. James Avery was also considered for the role of Charlie, and I gotta say, that wouldn't have been too bad either. Uncle Phil is fucking awesome as an actor, and it would have killed that, but he's... I don't think anybody could have done what Ken Foray did with it. David Hess of uh, Last House on the Left fame auditioned to be one of the bounty hunters. Didn't make it. And finally, the dreamlike sequences that Otis saw of himself, Captain Spaulding, and Baby during the end were actually clips of candid footage the three actors shot on the final day of shooting. After wrapping up on the last day, he filmed them as they had some post-wrap fun and said their goodbyes to the camera and ended up using that as footage in the film. The final body count of Devil's Rejects is 19. So with those numbers, let's find out how it did at the box office and look at the numbers! Numbers of the Beast. You're on mute, Muji. Sorry, I was fixing my phone to the fucking stupid connect to my car thing right right in the nick of time. All right, Numbers of the Beast movie came out on July the 22nd of 2005. Budget $7 million, box office $20.9 million. So it made some monies. It did, it did. And surprisingly... Got Rob Zombie hired to do Halloween, which he loved. I'm sure he got paid a lot for. But, you know, those movies were pretty taxing on him. I do kind of wonder 
if he wished he'd have passed on Halloween after this and tried to ride the success of Rejects into something different. Because after Halloween and both of those movies, he was pretty much fucking done with the studio system and said, fuck this, I'm going to release all movies just independently and on my own now and not have to deal with these motherfuckers telling me how to make my movie. So, uh, you know, I don't know, like, history is what it is, like, because Rob Zombie's still carved out a great fucking career for himself, and now he just got hired by Universal to make this Monsters movie went on Netflix and everything. And oh, so many horror fans shit on it and pissed on it. And oh, wah, wah, wah. Like, yeah, I fucking really enjoyed it. I thought it had great Halloween vibes. That's neither here nor there. But um, but I, I think Mr. Zombie has done okay, is what I'm saying. But I do wonder what would have happened if he didn't take Halloween after this and get burnt out on making studio movies. <laughs> Critical response for this is better than anything Zombie has ever gotten Though overall, still mixed reviews from the mainstream film critics. I think horror fans would consider this an all-time great. Maybe the mainstream, not so much. It's only got a 54% on Rotten Tomatoes. Uh, The consensus says he's improved as a filmmaker since House and will please fans of the genre, but it's nasty, relentless, and sadistic. Metacritic has it about the same place at a 53 out of 100 with mixed or average reviews. The heroes come from the strangest places, though, because, believe it or not, Roger Ebert, of all people, loved the film, giving it three out of four stars. He said, there's actually good writing and acting going on if you can step back from the violent material enough to see it. Uh, In his reviews for the Hills Have Eyes remake, he referenced The Devil's Reject and said, I received some appalled feedback when I praised The Devil's Rejects, but I admired two things about it that were absent from this film. It desired to entertain and not merely sicken, and its depraved killers were individuals with personalities, histories, and motives. So, made a fan out of Roger Ebert, that's one tough nut to crack if you're a horror guy. Uh, Rolling Stone's Peter Travers gave it three out of four stars. Says list here for the Southern Fried soundtrack from Buck Owens to Leonard Skinner playing over the Bloodstoke finale, which manages to wed the Wild Bunch and Thelma and Louise. Uh, Richard Roper gives it a thumbs up for being successful at its goal to be the sickest, twisted, most twisted and deranged movie of the year. Hey man, I'm uh, just randomly reading through like the experts from a lot of these like negative uh, reviews that it got, and. Uh, these are all pretty like dweeb reviews. It's all it's all about it just being like too nasty and pushing like the boundaries too far and stuff. I.e., as I said, this is just some this is some dweeb reviews right here. Yeah, the Chicago Tribune says the characters are, to put it mildly, underdeveloped. So the zombie didn't get any of the underlying social heart or tension of films like I Spit on Your Grave and Texas Chainsaw Massacre that he's trying to emulate. Uh, He's no artist of influences like Quentin Tarantino. It plays more like a junkyard of homages, lost among inept cops, gaping plot holes, and buzzard-ready dialogue. That guy's entitled to his wrong opinion. (laughs) James Berardinelli was very negative, giving it a half a star, calling it a vile, reprehensible movie, saying the action was more formula than plot. A pastiche of the kind of bloodthirsty, overripe lines found in a genre of films from the 70s about outcasts who defy society by destroying it. 
He was critical of the acting, directing, and production values, calling it a cataclysmic misfire and not engaging cinema. Well, horror fans disagreed with him. That it's gained a cult following, uh, even amongst non-horror fans. Um, I was surprised to find out, like, people at my work, like, seven out of fucking 12 people on my work team at my real fucking mundane office job liked this movie. Um, like, crazy what an appeal this had to be so extreme. I think it it is maybe the most extreme thing to have that wide of an appeal. It's pretty wild. I do think it's funny that the one critic was like, he's no Quentin Tarantino. But then fucking Stephen King was like, mm, this, like, I don't know if he meant it as a compliment or not, but <laughs> he says there's no redeeming social merit and it's that a, a perfect C grade picture, C grade picture cheesy glow. This must be what Quentin Tarantino meant when he did those silly Kill Bill pictures. Like, I read that to me reads as like a compliment, like that Rob Zombie pulled off the 70s cheesy film way better than yeah. Tarantino. So, I suck it, other guy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, horror fans have embraced this film like nothing else. Like, it's it's widely, with almost unanimously praised the zombie's best film. Um, it has been copied, ripped off in every form of fucking video game to media uh, to wrestling. It got a sequel. Uh, Three from Hell that came out in 2018. Sadly, I think he waited a little too long to capitalize on the sequel because, unfortunately, Sid Haig was kind of on his deathbed when they started shooting that. Um, I mean, this didn't require a sequel. We'll maybe talk about that in final thoughts, but um, I, I enjoyed Three from Hell. It's just a shame that, that you know Sid Haig didn't get to do the originally designed role for him in that. But uh, still, wouldn't have happened without all the demand from this movie. I mentioned wrestling. God damn it, there's a ton of people in wrestling influenced by this. Obviously, myself and my Devil's Reject stable, which I, you know, was kind of going for like the Road Warriors vibe. They, they kind of took their name from a movie that was my homage, and we did that short after the film came out in the late 2005. So just a few months later, and we rode that for many years. I think we finally retired that title because a we can't merchandise it and b um like it had its run and it was a fucking great run but now we're doing other things and like you know it's it's good to preserve that past as it was as opposed to cheapen it with a a bunch of uh more members who are not the the caliber of the original and that's no offense to even those guys who i all love anyway there, there was us and then, of course, the Wyatt family had some considerable Rob Zombie, Wyatt, uh, Firefly family influence. The Righteous in ROH, the Bunny in AEW, uh, Jamie Senegal on the Indies makes references to the Devil's Rejects in some of her stuff. Like, it's fucking, like, it's everywhere. And that's fine. Like, you know, that just shows you what a fucking powerful piece of art it is. So... If you want to take it home and you don't have it already in your DVD collection, why the fuck not? But good thing Annie's here to save your ass because she's going to tell you how to get it. Absolutely. It was released on DVD in November of 2005 um, from Lionsgate Home Video. And they released both just the regular theatrical cut and a two-disc unrated director's cut with special features. And that included, you know, 
the extra footage and all that. And uh, then the Blu-ray, which just was the same thing, but on Blu-ray, was released um, in August of 2006. And then they put out a combo pack with House of a Thousand Corpses in January of 2011. And then, of course, after Three from Hell came out, it was released in a collector's edition um, House of a Thousand Corpses and Three from Hell three pack in in 2019. Um, and as of right now, it is currently streaming on, as long as the internet's not lying to me, HBO Max, uh, Tubi, Pluto, Vudu, Shudder, Plex. And then also, if there wasn't enough free options or subscriptions you likely have, you can rent it for $4. You're muted. All right. Well, we're pushing some length on this episode, but that's okay. It's an episode worthy of a lengthy discussion, but... We're about to wrap it up for you finally here on Final Motherfucking Thoughts. So, what did I think after my 387th viewing of Devil's Rejects? I thought it was as fucking great this time as it was the first time I saw it. Um, Sometimes you just create cinematic magic. I think even people who aren't fans of Rob Zombie would admit that he just touched on something special with this film. I will sing its praises till the end of time. Uh, If I'm locked on a fucking desert island and can only take like three movies, this is one of them. Um, This is uh, like I I will watch it hundreds of more times before I die. I love it with all of my heart. Absolutely one of my favorite movies ever. Still. Um, Yeah, this is a really good movie. Um, I... Enjoy it every time we watch it, which is like minimum three times a year, probably um, all in October. And, you know, it's it's just a great movie. Um, It's got so many great quotable moments from it. Um, I also really like the shift from uh, Dan and I talked about this after we watched it about how. House of a Thousand Corpses is a story told from the perspective of the victims. And you see um, the the main three characters, the Firefly family extended and all that. You see them as if, you know, you were a victim watching as well. You're seeing it from their perspective. There are these one-dimensional characters. Um, and when all of them die, the movie kind of ends. Uh well, the victim, because you're, you know, you're a victim, you're watching it from that perspective. And then you could almost even back to back these movies, like run them into each other from the end scene in House of a Thousand Corpses with like the frozen shot, the wide panned out shot and have it like do like a 360 rotation and start this film, which is then from their perspective. It's, it's about them and showing the other side of the equation it's you know not the same story told from the other side but you know what i'm saying um and i find that really interesting that we don't we don't get a lot of movies where we're seeing the story on the side of the killers of the bad guys um and you know it as it's been mentioned, you eventually are rooting for them to survive, to get out of the scenario, uh, because fuck them cops. And I think that's like 
which is pretty innovative. Like he's obviously probably not the first person to do it, but you know, it wasn't something that we were seeing at the time and it really made it different and it really made an impact and clearly everybody loved it so much that they had to, you know, give all the scenarios on how these characters survive so they can bring them back for three from hell because people were so attached for it to them and were demanding it. Um, I, it, it's a great movie. Everybody thinks so. And if you don't, you're the wrong one. Well, I won't disagree with any of those sentiments. Um, I haven't watched it quite as many times as you guys, but I have seen it several times over the years. I think it is what it is. It's, I think it's a fantastic movie. Obviously, all of us like those 70s grindhouse type flicks. And I think what stands up for me is it's not a vehicle for any, you know, it's not a, a star vehicle. It's like, here's the one guy. You have like a great bunch of character actors just doing what they do really well. And it just makes for this really powerful movie. It's well shot, you know we talk about the motel room scene you know i don't think anybody used the word tension but just the tension built from that and no it doesn't go as far as some movies but just how he was able to build that tension because you just didn't know where it was going to go and it didn't look like any of the actors did either so scenes like that fantastic performances great soundtrack great cinematography it's got pretty much everything um you know, it could just be because, you know, I saw this. It was a just a good time in life, just a good movie to come out at that time. Um, it holds up really well. It's still hilarious, you know, still quotable, still got that same tension. So it's a win-win. Yeah. I don't know how much more I can add to um, what everybody said, but of course, love this movie. Um, it's uh, It does, you know, it pulls off like the really rare feat of being like just totally you know, gross and disgusting and violent, but also being fucking hilarious. Like, you know, you just don't get that hardly at all anymore. It's really like a super elevated version. I hate the word elevated too. I wish I wouldn't have said that, but it's, it's just like a, you know, it's like if you take like some of like the, you know, kind of like crappy B version like grindhouse movies from the seventies, but actually like make a really like great, like movie out of one of those, not just, you know, for, you know, all of the violence and nudity and all that stuff. Like that's what he did. Like he took something like that that you really loved, made a fucking awesome, like actual great movie out of it. And, um, it makes me sad that there's not more movies like this and, fucking these days especially ones that have like an okay little budget like this so yeah man this uh this movie's awesome it's definitely his best movie although lords of salem is a close second i think that that one's finally picking up steam and people are actually kind of like in the last couple of years are realizing like how fucking badass that was too but of course love the devil's rejects all right well we'll go ahead and wrap it up we've kept you a while here and normally we'd be saying goodbye to the season tonight but Thanks to our wonderful executive producer, Casey Oliver, from the executive producer tier over at patreon.com slash OGScare. Casey has decided that for his bonus episodes for the two months we've been doing this, he actually wants to do two bonus episodes of the season. He wants two more Kill Billy episodes. We're going to give it to him next week. The... 2000s remake of House of Wax. You can 
see Paris Hilton and more meet their untimely demise next week on Seeking Human Victims. This is not a test. This is not a test. Please remain calm. Unburied dead are coming back to life at Seeking Human Victims. Seeking Human Victims. Product of One Good Scare Productions. It is written, edited, researched, and directed by Dan Wilson, with assistance by Fuji Grant and Annie Wilson. Original music is provided by Shredford, as well as KD Grant. All other music and audio clips are property of their respective editors.